these tape recordings I'm making are for the sake of future history, if any. All radio is dead. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the IWMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And in case you haven't listened to the podcast before, I make Ian watch movies or TV shows or read books or listen to music that uh, are artifacts from my youth way back in the 20th century. So we can find out what does he think of them, coming to them new, what do I think of them, coming back to them uh, decades later. And once again, I've made him watch a movie. Yes. A movie that I knew of the story, but never of this version. But once I saw it, I think I've known about this version, just never that it was all from one version. Well, yeah, this is a movie that we have treated in a few different ways in the IWMP before. But not this particular movie. Yeah. This story. And growing up, this was like the iconic version of this that I was aware of because it showed up on the ABC 430 movie in New York on uh-huh. a regular basis. And it was on Channel 9 at various times. So I would see this on TV a fair amount. And it was only later. And I had a, I had a vague knowledge that it was based on some old book. And it was only later that I realized that there, were, there was the original book and there was a famous radio adaptation. And even since then, there have been many more movie and TV adaptations. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a story that continues to be poignant and multi-layered. Well, we're talking about... War of the Worlds. Uh-huh. Yes, again. Specifically, we're talking about the 1953 version of War of the Worlds, produced by George Powell. <sighs> I'd never heard of this version of this. Most people think of this as a George Powell movie, because he had such a, a certainly a visual style that was imprinted on the movies that he produced and directed. Yeah, there is something about this kind of era and styling. There's something about this this type of film in that sense, where it is, it's got a little bit of that stage play grandeur and drama to it, but it's got just a technical aspect that means that everything feels cohesive. I don't know. There's something about this that got me. And there's something about movies from this era that always get to me because it's like, it's like, it's not, it's definitely not the normal everyday world. It doesn't have that sense of realism, but it has this sense of heightened group. Like this is a a cinematic world in that sense. It's like if you were to fall through a a film camera, I feel like you'd land in whatever kind of overdramatic styling or just right dramatic styling this kind of movie has. I think I understand what you mean. It, it's, it's a very precise, it's a very mannered kind of portrayal of the world and a type of person in the world. Yeah. In some ways, these George Powell movies and some others like them from that 
50s era. They are of a type with a lot of the science fiction literature that was written and published in that time. That was a very, very mannered, a very clear depiction of the strange science-related problem and the hyper-competent man, usually man, almost always man, who's going to solve it. And it it erases all of the things that might complicate that very simple and straightforward picture that people are trying to portray. Yes. I am a person who likes spending time just reading random articles on the site TV Tropes. And that has its positives and its negatives. But when you look at this sort of media, in terms of this type of movie, and if you think of the books at that time, there is something very pure to its trope portrayals. A character of a type and an archetype in one of these will have a certain bearing and a certain clean presentation of being a an example of that archetype. It's like, I, I can appreciate all the little other nuances that current shows and movies and TV love to add to their characters, but there's something, you know, a plain grilled cheese sandwich that you know what you're getting about how <laughs> some of these characters are exactly what they are. If you are the military general, you are the military general. If you are the scientist, you are the scientist. And there is something relaxing about a world that plays out stories with broad ideas with such clean, careful character lines. And here we have Gene Barry playing Dr. Clayton Forrester. Wait a minute. No, not that Dr. Clayton Forrester. I mean, this doesn't take place in the not-too-distant future? <laughs> no, it takes place squarely in the year, uh, yeah. it's very specifically the year of our Lord, 1953. Yes. Very contemporary telling for its time. And he is playing a, uh, I'm trying to remember the name that they gave Caltech. Was it like Pacific Technical Institute or something like so. that? I think so, Pacific, yeah. Uh, he's playing, well under a different name. He's playing a Caltech physicist who happens to be one of the first people on on the scene for the landing of a meteorite that turns out not to be a meteorite. That turns out to be the vanguard of an invading army from another world. And he is, like you say, he's very much the clearly drawn in sharp lines, square-jawed, hyper-competent man of science who's going to help solve this problem. And they spend a lot of time at the start with the crash, honestly. They take their time getting to the the dramatic war part of the War of the Worlds here. And even before the crash, they really dig into the, the prologue. Yeah. Adapted from the prologue, in the, or I don't know if it's technically a prologue, the beginning of the H.G. Wells novel that this is based on, talking about how Humans did not suspect that they were being observed from a distance by cold and calculating eyes. It's a great speech. I don't have it memorized, but <laughs> I don't believe H.G. Wells did this, but the movie takes us on a tour of the solar system. Yeah. It essentially rules. It's like house hunters for Martians. No, <laughs> this one's too cold. No, this one has too high a gravity. They, they look at everything from, I think they start with Pluto and work their way in. They never mention Venus. They never mention Venus. But they rule out every other planet. The Martians want to take over another planet. The only one that's worth it is Earth. 
they they go from Pluto. They they go through all the other things. They skip Phobos. They go right on over. They who cares? Who about cares Phobos? about Phobos? <laughs> and you know, some of their their planetological knowledge was was a little different. They were talking about the the, the harsh terrain on the surface of Jupiter. Um, no, not so much. But some cool artwork, though. Some great paintings. Some wonderful paintings. But yeah, once they once the, the, the meteor crashes, once the meteorite is there, in California, they've relocated it once again. It's not in England. It's not in New Jersey. It's in California. It's in California. They spend a lot of time in this small town scratching their heads and wondering what to do about this thing that landed. I, I do love how casually the radioactivity of it is dealt with, <laughs> where it's just like, oh, I decided to bring my Geiger counter along, and this thing's really beeping. Like, should we be away from here? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I'll take two steps back, you'll be fine. And meanwhile, I'm going to uh, have three deputies stay here to guard it. And meanwhile, they're also wondering, you know, where are they going to set up the, the sandwich shops and the souvenir stand? Because this is going to be a gold mine for the town. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, spoiler for the very, very old movie, very, very old novel. It's not a meteorite. No. It's, it's a, a spaceship or a landing capsule, and out come the Martians, and the war begins. Yes. And I'm intrigued, because their take on the meteorite was very clever in terms of, like, the prop itself, because it's this rocky-coated thing whose perfect capsule pill-like shape is the thing that makes it seem odd. Yeah, the fact that it had a weird trajectory coming in, and the fact that it looked far too regular and, and machined uh, sitting there on the ground. Yeah. But I like the fact that it wasn't just gleaming metal. It looked like something that had been through re-entry and then crashed into the dirt while really hot. Yeah, it it made the everyone thinks it's a meteorite at first more plausible, which I appreciate. And this is something that George Powell and the effects people who worked with him were were really good at, making things seem real and solid, and, and this is what I would expect this to look like. It, it brings these science fictional things into the real world in a way that that worked very well in its time, and and I would say competes with any detailed CGI you would get today, because it seemed so physical. And then I've got to mention the walkers. Oh, yes. The Martian tripods? Yeah. That have invisible legs. I liked that. That was a daring update, and it was done well. Yeah. It's really, really interesting doing it that way because it's like they are these bewilderingly smooth things with these lighted little fins on the end and this eye stalk that fires heat rays. In, uh, in the 19th century, when, when H.G. Wells wrote his book, and even in the 1930s when Orson Welles did his radio adaptation, a machine that can walk around on three legs, that's pretty scary super science. In the 1950s, with jet aircraft, we're almost to the beginning of the space race. Something walking around on metal legs would seem kind of hokey and old-fashioned. And they, they took the leap of changing the tripods 
while still having a line or two that were nice nods to the uh, the original. Yeah, I mean, they, they go through this entire thing of, like, noticing the legs from their projectors and giving them these little blue sheens and such. The thing that weirded me out seeing this is that I was completely aware how revolutionary a design style this looked like for these alien craft, and it just screamed pieces of my own childhood to me in a way I was not expecting. Because there's something about these that reminded me of, like, old Tiger Electronics things. <laughs> I'm gonna pull a random reference. The Poochie Robot Dog had that same kind of metallic surface <laughs> with the little transparent plastic on all the end bits. <laughs> and I'm like, why does this, why can I, like, feel the plasticky texture of this in my mind? Now, when I was a kid watching in this in the seventies, I really didn't have any frame of reference like that. So to me, they were they were cool, and they were they were this weird combination of right now and futuristic, because they were they were smooth and curved in the way that a modern jet aircraft would be, and yet they weren't shaped in any way that was supposed to be for high speed aerodynamics. They were shaped for some very different purpose to, for walking around on magnetic legs they almost look aquatic in how in yes. their their smooth river stone polished kind of feel like like a, some kind of a ray almost a, yeah a, they're a, very manta ray like yeah they also kind of reminded me of an old lego series of life on mars that came out that had all these like extra curved bits and things and these like tubes and pumps and such well I, I yeah. mean, it's like the Lego aspect there just reminded me too. And I was like, oh, hey, passes the Lego test for me. And those Lego kits and other depictions of, of Martians may very well have been influenced by this very famous depiction. Oh, absolutely. Like that. And that, it was one of those moments where like my mind immediately jumps to like, <laughs> wait a minute, it's like that. And then the back of my mind, I've got to think, no, that's like this. <laughs> Things happen in a sequential order in this frame of space-time. And I'm like, ah, dang it. And the fact that these smooth, strange-looking machines have these pods on top connected by tentacles, or they can, they can extend tentacle probes that move in an almost organic way creates this dissonance that when I was like, you know, 10 years old, this was scary stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in the middle of the afternoon, watching this at 10 years old, it's like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. They are creepy. They I, they didn't have the same punch, but I can, un like, they definitely had that creepy vibe of disconnect, where, especially when you're pairing something weirdly this fluid in both ways, with the very stiff and formal way some of our humans are acting and treating, like, <laughs> All the human vehicles are these boxy things, these military jeeps that come over later, these school buses. And meanwhile, the aliens have these sleek things that are snaking around in the lake. It does a good job of making big, powerful human technology look antiquated, despite being current for its time. When the military, I mean, after these things start coming out, they start zapping people with heat rays because i guess the best way to take over is to get rid of everyone who's there already martian tactic 
but the military shows up in force right after and starts trying to push them back and seeing these things bounce off these giant magnetic shields and not do anything it just adds this sense of futility because all of the human things feel slow and feel ineffective and feel pointless in terms of their potential to stop this. And that's where we spend the second act of the movie. The first act is the, the the creeping horror mystery of what is this thing, and oh my goodness, there are living creatures inside, and oh, they're dangerous. The second act is the, the war movie, and, and we see... You know, the military response. And this, I'd say, is a very patriotic movie. It is portraying the military as being very capable, very competent, full of good people who know their jobs and who are completely outclassed by this enemy that is not of this world. It's an interesting balance they draw. They don't, they don't depict the military as failing as much as they depict this is an enemy that no one could withstand. Yeah. And and that's the 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 defense and the the battle of of this little town in California becomes more and more intense as that part of the movie goes on. And it becomes really intense by the end. Oh yeah. It is it is extremely violent. This is another part that was kind of scary. It's very violent. It's very filled with noise and light and action. And and it gives you a sense that we are suddenly in a war that we we quickly learn we have no hope of of winning. And oh, did you notice the rating on this movie? No, it's rated G. What? Yeah, we got burning, screaming uh, uh, GIs running all over the place during those end of those ba- uh, battle scenes. At rated G. Now this must have been uh-huh. this was rated sometime later because that rating system didn't come into effect until the late 60s but still. Still? Well there's no sex and there's no swearing so we can rate it G. That's just general audiences. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. general did have an audience <laughs> to watching all of his men get vaporized. <laughs> well then. And we also have Anne Robinson because yes. you know it's a movie in the 50s we've got to have some kind of a romantic interest there. Anne Robinson is playing Sylvia Van Buren, the librarian in this small town, who also has a master's degree, and who, one of the topics of her master's degree, which was about science or scientists, was Dr. Forrester. So she was delighted to meet him. And they, over the course of this intense experience, they do fall in love. Mm -hmm. And he, Forrester, kind of has the blessing of the, the uncle that she lives with, who is the local pastor. Very much the blessing issue. Yeah, Uncle Matthew. So maybe he's just looking to marry her off. I don't know. I don't. It, it, <laughs> but they're they're all good characters. They're all people who mean well and are good at their jobs and, and care about the people around them. And that heightens the emotion of what we see them go through. Yeah, because this is where it kind of diverts in a way that I found interesting, though, because the their little story going through it is a powerful motivator to get our characters from place to place and give them kind of a, a reason to not, I I knew they wouldn't get killed off for pathos because they were important in this other storyline that was going, which is kind of just useful as a, an anchor point. But when they, when they go off on their own, we wind up with this 
side piece to the story of them seeing more and learning more about the aliens hiding and trying to escape. And they, I didn't expect some of what goes on there because we actually see some of the aliens. That's pretty intense. Yeah. When, when, uh, when Sylvia and, and Dr. Forrester escape from the, the battle that went so horribly, they wind up hiding out in this farmhouse and then the farmhouse gets attacked by Martians it's one of those things that makes me think that someone just sort of figured out what scenes existed in the original uh, novel mm-hmm. and then created scenes to map to them. And they don't always come together into a coherent story. And yet each one stands on its own very well. So this farmhouse scene, it's, it's suddenly back to another kind of horror movie where they're stuck in a house and something is creeping around outside. No, there's a glimpse of something. A little jump scare. Yeah, they wander into a different type of movie there. Yeah, and these tentacled probes from the, the, the tripods outside start to, to come in. and Although that's when they get a chance to chop the, the end off one of them, and they get some more insight into what the world looks like to, uh, to Martians. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I do appreciate, because even though they are walking into a different kind of like creeping horror, Dr. Forrester just does not flinch in the way I would have expected other characters in this sort of story to do creepy eye thing comes down sure you hide for a moment then you hit it with a look with a nearby (laughs) axe and you chop off pieces and you're a scientist you take the samples back with you there is just this there's something that is almost more like a a vin diesel character level of aggressive (laughs) that i didn't expect from this scientist guy there and i appreciate it it's the kind of character you'd see in a lot of Asimov stories and Heinlein stories and other science fiction from the time. It's like the, like I was saying, the the strong-jawed man of science, but man comes first. We also do get to see one of the aliens here, and between him acting so much tougher with, with local weapons he's picking up, and the design of these aliens, I was having major Half-Life 2, just Half-Life <laughs> series flashbacks, because it's, you know... Action scientist takes it to the aliens directly. <laughs> and the aliens themselves, who we get the best look at them in this farmhouse sequence, mm-hmm. those are not George Powell's strongest effects. No. They, it depends so much on how they're lit and how they're framed. Sometimes they look a little goofy. They look a little too much like a breakfast cereal mascot or something. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I've been thinking the exact same thing. I'm, they're these light brown color. They've got these bright three color section eye on the front. It looks like it looks like a a peanut butter cereal mascot that came out around the time <laughs> ET first hit hit theaters. And there are some other parts, like later in the movie, where you only see little bits of them. Like you only see a three suckered hand kind of thing and that's creepier and more intense and and scarier the more we see of them the more goofy they seem these little short no-necked things and that's mostly it's mostly saved by the performances of our lead actors by the lighting and by the score pretty good Mm -hmm. score in this but but yeah they almost deflate the whole thing those shots of the aliens when the alien reaches up behind our female lead and puts a hand on her shoulder it's creepy 
when she spins around, sees the thing, and screams, it almost looked like the alien was scared for scaring her. (laughs) I almost expected it to, like, disappear off screen and leave the little puff of dust from a Hanna-Barbera cartoon in its wake. It's got the exact, like, arms as long as its body thing, where I expect it to do the Kermit the Frog hands-in-the-air wave (laughs) scream. And yet, and yet, the eye is sufficiently weird that it's still somehow scary. It certainly was when I was 10. Still somehow scary, this weird three-part, three-colored eye that this thing has, which mirrors the, the, the shape and colors of the probes that they send out. I, I, I agree. For some reason, I keep on wanting to imagine that it spins. The eye? Yeah. It doesn't turn. Oh, weird. But in my mind, it's like, shouldn't this thing rotate? <laughs> and it doesn't. And I don't know why that bugs me, but it You're did. You're thinking of like a rotating color filter on a lens. Almost. Like, I, I almost wanted to show like emotion <laughs> by spinning, and I don't know how or why. But I, I, I've got to look back through the footage. I don't think those ever spin. I think it always stays. Yeah. The problem is, being three-part, they decide to go with two sections above and one section below, if I remember correctly. I think that's right. Which actually, unfortunately, gives it too much of a human-like face, because you wind up with two very large eye sections and one section that you can almost see as mouth. Yeah. Which kind of adds to that serial mascot non-threateningness, because it winds up with this big mouth and these big, like, chibi character eyes, if you look at it for too long in brighter light. It it just looks happy in a bad way. And it's like, if this spun, if this was even just flipped 180, it would be more unnatural. (laughs) Instead, it's like, oh, it's Max the Martian with marshmallow cereal. Exactly. I don't care if it doesn't have a visible mouth. This thing has a squeaky voice. I can tell. (laughs) Hi, kids. And meanwhile, while... um, Sylvia and Dr. Forrester are dealing with this. The military all over the world is attempting to to mount some kind of resistance. And we get some really good scenes here. And one character, the, the character who kind of represents the military, and again, this is a movie that I think is trying to portray the military in a very good light, a very positive light, even though the military is not succeeding. Mm-hmm. We've got Les Tremaine as Major General Mann. He's, yeah, he's Major, Major General, General Man. Man. M-A-N-N. Oh, my god! But he's, he's a terrific actor, probably better known for radio than for movies. He did a lot of movies. And he's the kind of general who, who listens to his junior officers, to the, the colonel, uh, who was Colonel Harriman, who was kind of running the initial defense in California. Listens, General Man listens to Harriman, compliments him on the way he's deploying his forces, gives him advice, but lets the colonel run the show because that's his job. And then we see man as part of the, the wider attempt to mount a global defense. And we get a little interlude where the narrator is telling us about how the different militaries and governments of the world are trying to coordinate this. And it does a good job of pretty quickly escalating to show us how big an issue this is and how hopeless it is. But to me, that's where the movie starts to go downhill. Because the story really starts to lose momentum at that point. We have a whole succession, initially, of mystery, 
problem, catastrophe, escape, new mystery, new catastrophe, new escape. And then it it's sort of the whole situation becomes more hopeless, and we just start to kind of follow the characters through that. There are some cool sciencey things where the scientists are studying the lenses on this the probe that Clayton was managed to chop off the tripod and, and bring back to whatever they called Caltech with him. And, and that's a really memorable scene where they're showing us the images as they would appear through these lenses. Yeah, I'm actually trying to remember, because I think I've got the right uh, cast. I believe it was Anne Cody as Dr. Dupree, Dupre, who's there like analyzing the blood sample off of the axe to get one of these things from. And honestly, for the character who gets to hint at the ending and hint at the conclusion of the narrative, there is something so matter of fact, like I appreciated that caught me because I know this story. I know how it's going to end and having a character in this who's like, guys, calm down. This is a problem for them. <laughs> like I'm, I'm looking at this microscope and I'm seeing the end of this story. They're, they're, Blood is so anemic and their cellular structure is so weak. It's like, you know, no wonder they need to find somewhere else. Mars is killing them or they're dying out in some way. But that that, that performance got me. And I, I, <laughs> it's hard to find some of the crediting except for the lead actors on these old ones. So I think I've got the right actress there. And that scene with all the scientists taking in, they said they had a half an hour to do all this. <laughs> and they, they it shows a cooperating group of specialists in a really good way. There's a... Electronics guy, an optics guy, a, bio, uh, a woman who is the expert in biology, and each of them gravitates towards something about this sample that Clayton brought back to that they can analyze and they can learn something from. I'm sorry, though. He's got a chopped off alien camera tentacle. And you're saying that even with a team, they were able to get this thing to project onto a projector in 30 minutes. <laughs> I can't even get a modern webcam plugged in via standardized USB to run right within 30 minutes. What are they doing? <laughs> they would be still trying to install G-Hub. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, great. I, I, I think it's on OBS now. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no, no. Change scenes. Hit the stream deck. <laughs> That's what's happening inside the Martian <laughs> ship. <laughs> oh, and the reason the scientists only had a half an hour to, to do their initial analysis of this sample is they had to go out and observe the atomic bomb that was being dropped in order to uh, just to see nothing the military has is having any effect on the Martians. We've resisted it now because of there's some danger of radiation to the civilian population. Yeah, I think yeah. so. <clears throat> So we'll drop atom bombs on them and see if that works. And no, uh, it doesn't. See, the walkers were not scary to me when they first came out. I was talking about how they reminded me of children's toys. But seeing them coming out of the atomic mushroom cloud, still, per still walking forward, firing heat rays, did make those smooth plastic tipped looking things scary and those were the scenes where in this rewatch i realized the people who worked on neon genesis evangelion must have watched this and been a huge fan of this because it it had that same kind of feeling we've got the these long distance shots of the 
aftermath of an atomic explosion and the inexplicable creatures we're trying to destroy because they are trying to destroy us just emerge from the smoke unfazed. Such a chilling scene. Oh my goodness, the giant shoulder pads and the center round face. Yes, Angel 4, exactly. (laughs) Like, that is just a creepy Tim Burton version of the aliens from this. Oh my word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But after that, it's the, the, the atom bomb doesn't work. They've got to evacuate Los Angeles, and the the scientists are packing up all the gear and everything they can to to evacuate and try to set up a base where they can continue studying what information they have to find some way of of defeating this enemy. And there's still that feeling of hope that we have smart people who know their jobs, who know how to analyze data, and science is going to give us some way to respond. But people get in the way. We're seeing talk about the tactics that the uh, aliens are using to sweep through areas. We're getting uh, high-flying surveillance footage, but they're having to change what types to be able to avoid getting shot down. And there's this tension, but they keep on getting more info. They're doing more study. They're doing their research. They're finding more things. And... We're also seeing bits of, like, the attacks happening all over. Reports of other international locations that have been struck, been hit, been hurt. Yeah, this is happening all over the world. There's mass evacuations in in every major city. And the movie and its narration do a good job of portraying this as a global event for which we are seeing little pieces. And, and, oh, that also reminds me of how back in that scene where General Mann was trying to coordinate the U.S. part of this global military response, they described, they took a few minutes to describe the, the tactics of the aliens and how precisely they were cordoning off a section, sweeping through it as an arc, destroying everything there, then anchoring the parts of a new sector and sweeping through it. Just so coldly and methodically sterilizing the surface of the earth of humans so that they could take it over in some ways for not having walkers with big three big legs they do a really good job of giving us this three-pointed sweeping triangle ever moving march tactic they describe the tripod walkers is a little bit more of their battle strategy than their machines in that way. And that's creepy. And everything came back to threes. The landing craft crashed down in groups of three, one one initial followed by two more. Each one of them contained three tripod machines. The aliens had the three-part eyes and the three-fingered hands. It was a a good consistent language. And he'd write it. It carried over into their tactics and the way they the geometry of the way that they attacked. It did a good job of giving them a properly alien feeling by rooting their entire existence in a base structure that is not the 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 one two binary of human design. <laughs> two limbs. Nope. This is all about three. The evacuation of Los Angeles, and in particular the the attempt to get the scientists and their equipment and their samples out safely is destroyed by the fact that there's panic and rioting going on. 
and people are attacking and killing one another for the sake of getting vehicles so that they can get out of town. It's humans are making their own defense this much harder. And on the one hand, it's really dark and depressing part of the movie. And on the other hand, I'm not saying it's unimportant, and it's not an important point that the filmmakers are making, but it just slows everything down completely. And there's not much to see happening. You start to see just more and more hopelessness because the characters don't have a lot of choices to make anymore. The battle for humanity versus the the aliens is being slowed down, but we also have literally our our romantic pair being ripped away from each other in the chaos, too. And that becomes Forrester's mission. He it's like he he gives up on the possibility of gathering with his other scientists and coming up with a way to defeat this enemy. And he's just looking for Sylvia. And he's looking for Sylvia all over Los Angeles. And because of a story that she told about her youth earlier, he's looking for her in every church that he can find. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a very, uh, a very churchy, a very theological kind of movie at this point. Very much so. And that, that's a theme that's been consistent through the movie. I mean, we start with, with her Uncle Matthew, the pastor, the importance of religion, the importance of faith. Even though Uncle Matthew is killed by the aliens when he is trying to approach them in order to communicate with them in a, 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 in a peaceful approach driven by his faith. Mm-hmm. That didn't work. We... We see people gathering and, and relying on their faith, people who couldn't get out of town, people who chose not to get out of town, and he's visiting church after church looking for Sylvia. There is a certain monotony to the movie at this point. It does the slow down. The section seems like it goes on far longer than it probably does. And, and again, I think that's because there's really there's no choices for the characters to make at that point. And that leading into the end... I almost think it might have undercut how much it showed of the military stuff earlier because it it slows down and pulls away that image so much because we don't see as much of the military response to how the ending actually happens. Well, no, we don't. But I think the point that they made earlier is the military is irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, once they have understood the enemy's strategy and tactics, they've understood the enemy's weapons to the extent that they can and Really, the answer is they are devastating. And they have tried the most powerful weapon that we've got, and it had no effect whatsoever. I get the impression that apart from uh, assisting with evacuations, there's not much for the military to do. Yeah. Which is kind of depressing, but again, it's a depressing end section of the movie that we're talking about. But for anyone who knows the War of the Worlds, the aliens are defeated by... An unexpected force. Their anemic bodies, their their weak immune systems mean that they die from bacterial infection. Yep. Things in our atmosphere to which we have developed immunity, having evolved here, the aliens have no immunity to, and they start they apparently they had begun getting sick and dying from the moment they landed. And became critical all around the same time, so the reports came in from all around the world that they were dying. And that's where, in Los Angeles, we get this pretty cool shot of a crashing levitation tripod, and the 
door opening and the the hand reaching out, uh, the, the alien hand reaching out and going going still and changing into a weird color because the thing is dying. There's a section of the movie here, like from the atom bomb scene, all through the searching for Sil- all through the riots and the searching for Sylvia in all the churches. That's the point at which, when I was ten, I would kind of lose interest in the movie and I'd go back to drawing pictures of monsters or building towers of Lincoln Logs so I could knock them down. And of course, it's the scene with the hand of the alien reaching out of the ship that got my attention again, and I always had to look back for that. Oh yeah. But but yeah, and they and this news of the the creatures dying because of these infections they got from our environment is met with church bells and hymn singing and a very ecclesiastical kind of ending tone put on this. Yeah. Which is not the kind of tone that H.G. Wells would have put on this, not being a very theistic kind of guy, but it was a very American early 50s, even if our amazing military cannot triumph, God's on our side, and as a people, we all will triumph. Not that this movie was as as America, American patriotic and jingoistic as some movies of the time. It really was a global. They feel do a good the job this. when the when the tripods start uh, collapsing. They show international locations partially destroyed with tripods falling over in front of them. And I kind of like that message of this movie that. There's this faith that's bringing that's saving us, and it's also the faith and the result of of what's happening is is bringing us together. Yeah, and they do a nice job there of like we do see the top of the Eiffel Tower bent off to the side, but it this is gonna sound weird. It doesn't look irreparable. Like <laughs> all of the damage they show is devastating, catastrophic, big. None of it looked permanent. In terms of the way they designed it, it all looks like we could rebuild it, which is nice. It's got something to it there. It it is a movie that really took the broad outline of the H.G. Wells novel, filled in pieces of that outline with with pretty well executed set pieces. And I'm never sure if I think that this movie is is equal to the sum of its parts or a little bit less. It's it's an impressive movie, and it it was very highly regarded, very strongly reviewed. This was not something that was kind of brushed off as a uh, a sci-fi movie. For one thing, I, I believe it cost a lot to make for its time. And and it it I can it makes an impression. I can imagine the impression this would have made going in, never having seen it before, it being brand new and seeing it in a movie theater. Uh, I can see where it would be very impressive and almost overwhelming at times. And because the sound design, along with everything else, the sound that these machines and creatures make, the sound that the death rays make, we're friends. Yeah. Hey there. Open up. How are they going to understand us? We're talking sign language. They'll understand us, all right. Sure. Sure? Everybody understands when you wave the white flag, you want to be friends? Hey, there! Open up! Come on out! 
We're friends. That's right. We welcome you. We're friends. Yeah. It's like you you can hear this energy charging up and you know this is going to be bad. Mhm. It had a budget of 2 million in 53. Wow. So that's big for them. So it has a weight. It has a presence. I definitely think that this has, I mean, even ignoring the fact that the, the lead character is, his name is now the name of a character from Mystery Science Theater, a (laughs) series that has had plenty of impact on me. This movie has had impact in terms of culture, but I think we're leading into our, our final questions there to be able to discuss that aspect further. Yeah, I think so. It's a movie. Screen or no screen? No screen. Oh, really? As much as I enjoyed parts of it, my goodness, that slowdown at the end got me. And I I don't know. <clears throat> it makes it hard for me to say screen completely. Like, I almost want to take chunks of it I want to be able to pull up clips, but I don't want to sit through the movie again, so I'm going to not suggest sitting through it. Uh, I can understand what you're saying. I can't bring myself to say no screen just because the first half of this movie is so incredibly strong, so affecting, so powerful, so well-designed that the, the, the effects work and the sound design, and it just all comes together to be so impressive. I wouldn't want to tell someone don't screen because it would mean they're avoiding that experience. I almost wish I could tell someone to go ahead and watch it and maybe prepare them for the fact that it drops off in the second half or the the last last third. But you're right. It's I I wouldn't want to give someone an unequivocal recommendation of this movie because it is a a well-constructed movie and you're going to be riveted beginning to end because you won't be. But gosh, the parts that are good are so good that it it makes up for the parts that are lacking. Our next normal question is an interesting one here. Yeah, it's always a challenge for adaptations, and it's, uh, I think, a particular challenge for this one, because our next question is always revive, reboot, or rest in peace. (sighs) And in our terms, a revival is either a prequel or a continuation of the story in the same continuity. And I'm actually going to say revive. Yeah? Yeah. Because even though I didn't think like the movie itself was worth screening, this version and some of the things it added about the aliens, about their design, about their alienness, makes the idea of seeing a humanity story set later in the aftermath of this version of War of the Worlds, interesting to me. We saw humans picking up and breaking down alien technology to understand it in this film, more so than I've seen in a lot of other adaptations of War of the Worlds and the like. And there's a bunch of walkers now littering the Earth, an Earth that has had to band together and communicate because of a horrific event a lot more than it had before. There's a bunch of alien scrap metal and tools now. And the idea of seeing, like, what does one generation later 
in a world that has immediately turned around and integrated what they learned from taking these things apart look like? And are we mad enough to message back at the Martians that sent this first force? Are we infighting because we have all got these new shiny weapons? I want to kind of see that story. That's always been an interesting potential follow-up story to War of the Worlds. And this version gives a better hook for that follow-up than some others. Well, I've got some news that you might find interesting. Oh, goodness. There was a revival of this. Of this version? There was a TV series that premiered in 1988 that was explicitly created as a sequel to the 1953 movie produced by George Powell. What? And it ran for a couple of years. I think it was syndicated TV called War of the Worlds. And I think the only thing that they tweaked a little bit was that the aliens didn't actually die when people thought that they were dying. They were slipping into suspended animation and were like their corpses were put in toxic waste dumps or something like that. And, and essentially, decades later, in the 1980s, the war begins again. Oh my goodness. Okay. And yeah, it is. And, and they, they took their design cues and, and a lot of things about that movie. They were, it was explicitly a reference and an explicitly a continuation of the George Powell version of this. I never watched it. I don't know if it's any good, but it okay. ran for a few seasons, apparently. I'll have to look this up, because I don't know if they did what I'm hoping, but maybe. <laughs> Might be worth a look. Yeah. So, we know that there was a revival, or an attempt at a revival. Don't know how good it was, but it 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 backs up what you were saying about there is a lot of potential in the details of George Powell's depiction that give rise to continuing the story or telling more about this world. I, another way I could revive this could almost be make Clayton Forrester kind of an American Quatermass. Today, he's dealing with this Martian invasion. Next week, he's dealing with time-traveling demons or something. You know, he's, he's a super scientist who's always got something weird and scientific to fight against. Yeah, he definitely being that kind of strong-jawed character base that they've got there. The idea that this could become, weirdly enough, just a Tuesday for him is <laughs> possible in a way that is... You'd have to walk a careful line to not trivialize this movie, but it yeah. works. Mm -hmm. So I could see that being an interesting... Or I could have seen that being an interesting thing and an interesting career for Gene Barry oh, to yeah. continue playing Clayton Forrester in different kinds of movies. But when it comes to reboot, as we've said before, a reboot of an adaptation is essentially just a different adaptation. And there have been plenty, and people have different opinions about them. Absolutely. I admit, I'm always intrigued to see, and because there's always new pieces to the story to take on an adaptation in anything, but especially War of the Worlds and I'm going to get very current about this, an adaptation of War of the Worlds in post-2020 would be very fascinating. Mm. Because there's parts of that ending that hit differently. 
There's parts of the way we approach threats as in terms of military and in terms of social and things like that that are different now. Yeah, it's it's not the world that it was. War of the Worlds with War of the Worlds with Twitter, railguns, and post-corona is a very different (laughs) environment. Right. And that's an odd thing to think about, but I'd be fascinated to see whenever, because I'm certain we will, I'll be fascinated to see what that adaptation says when it comes out, and whether or not I agree with that adaptation even. And there have been other adaptations that were, for the time that they were made, contemporary retellings, like this 1953 version like version with Tom Cruise that was set when it was made. Yeah. I don't remember anything. There like have that. also been a few versions that were adaptations, more direct adaptations of the H.G. Wells novel set in the 19th century. I haven't seen any of those, but I'll be interested to see those because I can see possibly trying to avoid burdening the story with everything that you just described from the modern day. Let's tell it as a science adventure dramatic war story of the 19th century when it was written, because we can do so a little more cleanly. Yeah. And it's fun to put people in costumes and and all that. Absolutely. As long as there is a hobby store and a film camera within a certain distance of each other, someone will make sci-fi films. And I'm delighted by that fact. <laughs> and some of those sci-fi films will be takes on War of the Worlds because it's 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 the quintessential story for one kind of science fiction. Exactly. So I think that my 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 verdict on the 1953 George Powell War of the Worlds is I would be interested in seeing a a revival but regardless of what we vote there's always going to be reboots exactly so i'm glad i had a chance to uh, to show this to you yeah it's it's i figured it's a departure from the the arthurian and knights in armor theme that we had last month yeah we th- this was a hard turn into hg wellville <laughs> and you know i hadn't we don't always do monthly themes we don't always put movies together that way, but sometimes we do, and, and sometimes that's fun. So I've got another movie for you to watch for uh, for the next episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, well, wells. <laughs> we'll have to see. But we'll be back with that in a couple of weeks. Uh, and thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much for downloading this episode. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me at bymatthewporter.com. And there you'll find links to anything else I'm doing online. But most places you'll find me as by Matthew Porter. And if I'm crashing into your internet landscape, the the three legs of the tripod that that I will be there, I'll be found on Twitter as Item Crafting, on Twitch as Item Crafting Live, and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast, you can find us on Twitter as uh, IMMPcast, and you can find us at immproject.com, and that's where you will find links to all of our past episodes, and you will find a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and t-shirts and fun things like that, a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. There's also a contact page on the website where you can reach us, 
And you'll find a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much for anybody who's able to support us via Patreon. Uh, that helps keep the podcast going. And if you join us, uh, support us on Patreon at the movie club level, you will periodically get a surprise DVD in the mail with something that's going to be an upcoming episode of the IWMP. You get to experience what I do and get movies you didn't expect shown to you <laughs> at different times. It's fun. But thank you very much again for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you'll be back in a couple of weeks as we bring you more media from the 20th century. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. We'll take all our instruments and establish a base laboratory in the Rocky Mountains. It'll give us time to search out some weakness in the Martians. Hello?